The following message is brought to you by the teaching and preaching ministry of Crown Point Baptist Church and Pastor Mark Ermler. I'd really like for you to look with me at the text today. There's just a few verses. I have them also in your insert. But this study has been a tremendous encouragement to my heart because as we've gone through these feasts that are given to us here in Leviticus chapter number 23, we have seen Jesus. And it's wonderful. God knows the beginning from the end. God is outside of time and space. And God can write something uh, in His Word 1,500 years before it has actually come to be. And that's what we have as we look at these feasts. This is the Lord teaching His people about His coming Son. And... uh, For those that are a part of the Jewish culture back in the days of Moses, uh, we understand that Deuteronomy encouraged them three times a year to come together. They're broken down into spring feasts and the fall feasts. In the spring feasts, we have four of them, and we're going to look at the last of the spring feasts today. And then there is a summer season of harvesting And then the fall feasts begin with the Feast of the Trumpets. So up until this point, our focus has been Jesus Christ revealed in these first four feasts. Starting next Sunday, Lord willing, we're going into the future. We're going to look at the Feast of the Trumpets. We're going to look at God's calendar as it continues Everything that we're looking at right now, we can look back in history and point to it and say, yes, that historically took place. Everything we're about to look at is yet future events. And so you'll want to be here as uh, we begin looking at the Feast of the Trumpets uh, next Sunday. But let's just real quick go through uh, these feasts together. Uh, These three main festivals where God's people were called to come near to the Lord, are in Hebrew, the Pesach or the Passover. Uh, We're going to have Pentecost, which is at the latter end of spring. And then we're going to see Tabernacles, which is in the fall. And so these three times, every Hebrew male would gather together at that meeting place, wherever that was, if it was the tabernacle or if it was the temple, they would gather together uh, before the Lord. So for those that have not been here, can we review these feasts real quick? All right, number one, we saw the Passover feast. It all begins there, the Passover. Matter of fact, here in Leviticus 23, also in Exodus chapter 12, the Bible says that God was going to start a brand new calendar Matter of fact, God made it clear that although the month of uh, Nicene was actually the ninth month of the civil calendar, it would become the very first month of the religious calendar. So it was a new beginning, a brand new calendar. And you say, well, what was celebrated? The Passover. Can I tell you something? It all starts brand new when you come to Jesus Christ as your only hope for heaven. Everything is brand new. That old calendar, that old life, that's yesterday. When I come to Jesus Christ by faith and I receive the finished work of His Son, then everything begins brand new. We are new creatures in Christ. Old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. Isn't it interesting that God actually changed the calendar? And God said in Exodus 12, now, I think it's verse 2, now for you, this will be the beginning of months. And that all began with that first celebration of the Passover. Uh, This was the 14th day of the month, Nisan. It was the beginning of the religious calendar. And we see that this Passover lamb would be taken and would be crucified. Now, I know I have you in Leviticus, but just to let you see the New Testament connection, uh, if you have a Bible, go with me to John chapter number 12. A little bit of a review for some that have been faithfully here every single Sunday. 
But John chapter number 12, this is so exciting to me because God is so precise. By the way, God's calendar uh, is just what God declared it to be. And at the right time or the fullness of time, God's plan is revealed. We saw in John chapter number 12, verse number 1, then Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany. All right, you've got the 9th, 10th, 11th, 12th, 13th, 14th. All right, so what we have here is six days before, on the 9th, Ninth of Nicene, he comes to Bethany. Bethany is a community not far from Jerusalem. And this is so key that God allows us to see, I mean, to the day, this Passover. Why is that so significant? Well, look at later on in verse number 12. On the next day. All right, so if that's the 9th, 10th, 11th, 12th, 13th, 14th day is Passover... Six days before, on the next day, is the 10th. You say, well, what's so significant about the 10th? Well, Exodus 12 tells us that on the 10th day of Nicene, they were to select the lamb. Matter of fact, for those days, right after the Passover, that lamb was now selected for a household. And they were to examine that lamb for any impurities, any disease, any broken limbs. And the Bible tells us in Exodus 12, go home and read it this afternoon, that there uh, from that 10th day to the 14th day, there was to be an examination of the Lamb. What took place in Jesus as the Lamb of God as he was declared by John the Baptist, John 1.29, behold the Lamb of God that cometh to take away the sin of the world? Is this in I mean, in, in absolute fulfillment of what God laid out in Leviticus 23 and Exodus 12, absolutely to the day. The lamb is going to be scrutinized. You say, how did that take place? Look at verse 12. On the next day, uh, we see uh, much people that were come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was come to Jerusalem took branches of palm trees and went forth to meet him and cried, Hosanna, blessed is the king of Israel that cometh in the name of the Lord. At the very same time that they were looking for that little perfect lamb that they could sacrifice on Passover, Jesus, the lamb of God, came into Jerusalem. And Jesus presented himself to the crowd and they cried out, Hosanna! Hosanna, he's the king of the Jews. And for those next four days, he was scrutinized by the Sanhedrin. He was scrutinized by uh, the Jews that were in Jerusalem. Later on, he would be led there to Pilate's palace. And Pilate would say, I find no fault in him. Folks, the world looked at him and found the perfect, sinless, spotless lamb. In Jesus Christ. And it dovetails marvelously with our study of Leviticus chapter number 23. Number one, the Passover. Well, what follows after the Passover? We saw unleavened bread. Now, this would be the day following Passover from the 15th of uh, uh, Nisan uh, to the 21st, according to Leviticus chapter 23. It was a seven-day celebration. And over those seven days, they were to remove all leaven. Remember? Exodus 12, they were commanded there to have their shoes on their feet. They were to have their clothes on, their staff in their hand, because that night, the death angel would pass over, and they would immediately leave Egypt on their journey to the promised land. Can I tell you, when you meet Jesus Christ as your Savior, the perfect Lamb of God, your journey begins. Your walk with Christ begins. And that picture of leaven is a picture of scripturally sin. And they were to see that removed. Can I tell you, when you come to Jesus, all of your sins are removed. He washes you white as snow. All sins, past, present, and future are all taken care of by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. The world doesn't know what to do with its sin. We have a Savior that's already dealt with our sin. And He died for the sins of the world. And we recognize here that the Scripture goes on in this festival. 
It talks about, because it's seven days, a journey. Can I tell you, I cannot keep myself from sin, but what I received when I received Christ was the Holy Spirit of God. And the Bible says, if I walk in the Spirit, I'll not fulfill the lust of the flesh. The reality is that we can walk a life as Jesus walked if we're dependent on the Holy Spirit of God to fill us and to lead us to bear the fruit of the Spirit. And all that is laid out for us in Leviticus chapter 23 as well as the New Testament. We go back and listen to the message on uh, unleavened bread, but 1 Corinthians 1.30. 1 Corinthians 1.30. Then we saw last time the first fruits. The first fruits. When did this take place? This is so exciting because the Bible tells us here concerning the first fruits in Leviticus chapter 23 that that celebration would take place on the day or uh, the day after the Sabbath during the Passover week. The day after the Sabbath. What is the Sabbath? What day of the week is that? Somebody help me. Saturday. All right, so the Passover took place, and I believe three days and three nights, like Jonah was in the belly of the whale, so was Jesus Christ in the grave. And full three days, full three nights, that's why I'm not such a big proponent of Good Friday. I think the Catholics have it a little bit backwards. Uh, Jesus wasn't in the grave a day and a half. Three days, three nights, as Jonah was in the belly of the whale. By the way, that's Jesus that said those words. Jesus said those words, and I believe Jesus. And so I'm going to believe that's what Jesus was. He was three days, three nights in the grave. And yet we see on that resurrection Easter Sunday morning, that's the day following the week of Passover, the day following the Sabbath of the week of Passover, the first fruits offering was taken. The high priest would go across the river Kidron and he would take a sickle and he would take some of the grain of that wheat and he would bring that wheat back there to lay at the temple. And that Sunday, the high priest would take that and it would be waved before God as the first of the harvest. You know who rose on Easter Sunday morning? Jesus Christ. He is our first fruits according to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the first of the resurrection. What does it mean? It means that, yes, Jesus rose from the dead. He's now at the right hand of God the Father, but there's a whole harvest field that's going to be also resurrected. He's just the first. And my resurrection and your resurrection hinges on Jesus' resurrection. That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, it's all vain. If Jesus doesn't rise from the dead, it's all vain. It's all empty. It's just religion. That's all it is. But because Jesus rose from the dead, there's the promise that you and I who are in Jesus Christ will rise again one day as well. He's the first fruits. And that all took place there on that particular resurrection Sunday morning. We recognize God's ownership in the first fruits. We looked at the resurrection from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and we look at the final redemption of our own bodies at that resurrection. I tell you what, we're looking forward to the time that Jesus returns and receives us. The dead in Christ, they're going to rise first. That's the first resurrection. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. Listen, I'm not looking for Jesus somewhere on this planet. There's a radio, uh, a TV personality preacher that said, yes, Jesus is here in Africa. That's not my Jesus. Because we're not meeting Jesus in Africa or South America or in New York or in the Philippines. We're going to meet Jesus in the air. That's where we're going to meet Jesus. Any other Jesus that's presented to us is a false Jesus. So until I see him in the air, so shall we ever be with the Lord. What a blessing that is. And that is The first three feasts, the Passover, gives us the picture of Jesus as the lamb that's slain. The unleavened bread, Jesus has no sin in him as the bread of life. But uh, now that we are in Christ, we can live a sanctified life. And by the way, sanctification is also the work of Jesus Christ in our life. Read 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30 sometime. Yes, he is by redemption, but he's also by sanctification. 
You say, how can you live the Christian life, pastor? Through Jesus. It's the Christ life. It's the spirit life. I can be what God needs for me to be if I am uh, filled with God's spirit and walking in the spirit. So we have all of those to bring us to the next feast, which is the Feast of Pentecost, Leviticus chapter 23. And I wanted to rehearse that because some first-timers are here and you come in the middle of a series and you don't really know maybe what's going on. But let's today look at this Pentecost feast from Leviticus chapter 23. I'm just going to highlight a couple verses here for us. This is also known in scriptures as the Feast of Weeks. And it does hinge on the other feast, specifically the Feast of first fruits, which for us is Resurrection Sunday morning. All right, so let's follow along beginning in verse 14, where the Bible says, And ye shall eat neither bread nor parched corn nor green ears until the selfsame day that ye have brought an offering unto your God. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. And ye shall count unto you from the morrow after the Sabbath. All right? We're talking about the very day that Jesus rose from the dead, the morrow after the Sabbath. That's where we start our count. Okay, get that in your head. So Resurrection Sunday is where we start the count. And the scripture goes on and says, And ye shall count unto you from the morrow after the Sabbath, from the day that ye brought the sheep of the wave offering. All right? Remember the high priest, he's waving the first fruits. He doesn't realize it, but Jesus already has ascended. Jesus already rose from the grave. And uh, as the first fruits, and the Bible goes on and tells us now, uh, from that day where the sheep of the wave offering is waved, count seven Sabbaths or seven weeks. All right? So if you're on Sunday, the next Sabbath you're to count, and then the next Sabbath, and the next Sabbath, and the next Sabbath, and you add up the seven weeks, and you got 49 days. And now the Bible says, after the uh, seven Sabbaths shall be complete, even unto the morrow after the seventh Sabbath. All right? So it's 49 plus one. All right? It brings us back to the Lord's day. It brings us back to a Sunday. It brings us back here to that place where Pentecost actually means 50, and this is 50 days from the resurrection, 50 days from the uh, celebration 15 years in advance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That now Pentecost is a feast that will be celebrated, the last of the spring feast, and it is the morrow after that seventh Sabbath. So it is the 50th day, all right? And uh, we see here with that, with that 50th day, notice the description now of uh, what's to take place. The Bible tells us that there is to be a, and ye shall offer a new meal or meat offering unto the Lord. So it, this is something brand new. This is different. Verse 17, ye shall bring out of your habitation two wave loaves of two-tenths deal. They shall be of fine flour. They shall be bacon. That's not bacon, guys, from a pig, all right? That's, it's to bake bread, all right? You say, boy, they got bacon in their bread. What an awesome idea. Now, this is, uh, it's, it's baked bread. It's a baked loaf, all right? And, and the Bible goes on and tells us they are the first fruits unto the Lord, but notice they shall be bacon with something. What is it with? Leaven. Now, this is fascinating. This is the first time. This is with leaven. This is two loaves. Before it was individual grains that were waved before God at the first fruits. But now they are to celebrate by baking two loaves and in those loaves put leaven in it. What? Up until this time, no leaven. Get it out of the house. Not supposed to be there. But now put leaven in it. And take those two loaves and just like 50 days before the wheat was waved before God, now those loaves are to be waved before God. 
You say, Pastor, what in the world does all that mean? We're going to find out in just a second, all right? So let's hang on and uh, get into our study. Father, help us this morning to just really comprehend what you have for us in this Feast of Pentecost. Lord, I thank you so much for the richness of your word. I thank you, God, that even in what many would consider an obscure passage like Leviticus 23, we can see you, our Savior, our Redeemer, our, our Lamb. And God, I pray today that if there's anyone in this service that has not yet come to know you as Lord and Savior, that today would be that day. And God, for those of us here that are believers, I pray that you would ignite a fire in our heart concerning this wonderful relationship we have with you and all the benefits, God, that you lay at our feet as we follow your calendar. Use it this morning, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. Number one, you're looking for a point in Pentecost. What are we going to see? Number one, in Pentecost, we're going to see a connection. We're going to see a connection. Now, for many folks, when you read through the Bible, it seems like Pentecost just pops up in Acts chapter number two. It's a very famous passage. Peter's going to preach a, a message. 3,000 are going to receive the Lord Jesus Christ and be baptized on Pentecost. Pentecost is the giving of the Holy Spirit of God. And we're going to see the church marching from Acts chapter number 2 out into the world with the mandate of Jesus Christ of go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And they're going to do that with the Holy Spirit of God. You're going to be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. And he said, but tarry ye at Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. I got a job for you to do, but you can't do it without the Spirit of God. I got a world that needs to hear the good news message, but you can't do it in the flesh. You can't do it in your own power. You have to do it in the power of the Spirit of God. So there's a connection. First of all, I want us to see this Old Testament picture. The Old Testament picture. I've been reading lots of books on the feast, and I've just been kind of absorbing it all. And, and uh, as I'm reading uh, different uh, uh, commentaries and authors, uh, this jumped out at me that was such a blessing to my heart. I want you to go here to Exodus. Go to Exodus here, chapter number 19. In Exodus 20, something really astounding happens. Most of you learned this in Sunday school, but what were we given in Exodus 20? The Ten Commandments, all right? Also Deuteronomy chapter number 5. So we see here that there's going to be an occurrence out on, on Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb that is terrifying to the people. Matter of fact, you read through the text here at the end of chapter number 19, the whole mountain's on fire, all right? The smoke, and, uh, and uh, they were to put out barriers around the mount so they were not to approach God. He, he was not approachable. Matter of fact, they were so terrified as the voice of God was, was heard, they, they begged Moses, don't let us meet God. You meet God for us, and then you come down and you tell us what God wants us to do, and we'll do everything that God says. But we, we don't want anything to do with this God of Sinai. We don't want to do anything here with this God uh, of the clouds, and you can read the whole description here of it at the uh, uh, end of chapter number 19, beginning in verse 18, and the Mount Sinai was altogether on a smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. And the smoke there ascended as the smoke of a furnace. The whole mount quaked greatly. You, you can imagine being there and being absolutely terrified about uh, this God that's meeting us here in this solemn place. Well, one of these commentators pointed out here in verse number 1 of chapter 19, in the third month, when the children of Israel were gone forth out of the land of Egypt, the same day, so commentators have said that's the third day, the same as the third month, the third day, came they unto the wilderness of Sinai. 
Now notice verse number 11. And be ready against the third day, for the third day the Lord will come down in the sight of all the people onto Mount Sinai. So on the third month of the third day, they get there to the outskirts of Mount Sinai, and then they're told in three more days, God's going to come down on the mount. You say, well, what's so significant of that? That's the Old Testament uh, Pentecost. And the old scholars, the old Hebrew scholars, their Pentecost was Mount Sinai Pentecost, where God came. The same day. The same day that we have, if you take the calendar and work it out here to the 50th day uh, after the Resurrection Sunday, you're going to find the Pentecost of the Old Testament, and it is going to be a picture here of God's law. And again, from chapter 20 on, we see. So the first Pentecost was on Mount Sinai where God's law was written in what? Tablets of what? Help me. Stone. But in the Old Testament, God through the prophets told them, listen, there's a day coming where I'm not going to have to write it in stone. Where am I going to write? In your heart. In your heart. The Old Testament Pentecost versus the New Testament Pentecost. The Old Testament, a picture of the law and what we get with the law. The New Testament of what we get by grace. As Christ said, he will send another comforter that will abide with you forever. It's amazing. The first Pentecost versus the second Pentecost. First Pentecost there on Mount Sinai. The second Pentecost... There in Zion, the city of our God. Acts chapter 1, we don't have time today, but 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8. There we have the picture of what God was going to do. God said, now tarry. I, I know there are some in our religious world that look at the coming of the Holy Spirit as something that needs to be sought after, or like those 120 in Acts chapter number 1, they prayed for 10 days, and then uh, Pentecost took place. Can I tell you, it was exactly on God's calendar, on His timetable, not on man's. I'm glad they were praying for those 10 days, but those 10 days had nothing to do with when God was going to send the Holy Spirit of God. On the very day that the Feast of Pentecost is taking place among all the Jews, God's giving them the Holy Spirit, which will allow them to bear this fruit of the Spirit of God. And it's at this Pentecost that we see God uh, providing for mankind what mankind could not provide for himself. All right, so we see the Old Testament picture. We see the New Testament provision. Go to Acts chapter number 2. Here you have the New Testament account of Pentecost. And I love the way Dr. Luke writes through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Verse number 1. And when the day of Pentecost was, what's the phrase? Fully come. You know what, you know what Luke is saying? He's saying, listen... The fulfillment, it's, it's come. The, the, the Pentecost is here. Yes, at Mount Sinai, uh, we see the law of God in stone, but now we're going to see the law is going to be written inwardly on the heart. And the Holy Spirit of God is going to move among His people. And there is going to be this marvelous provision of God the type will be complete. It'll be fulfilled. By the way, the Old Testament scribes that I mentioned and scholars, they would pass the night of Pentecost in studying the law because they attributed uh, that day, Pentecost, as being the day when the law was given. And so they would spend the evening all night long reading the law. And yet we see that the provision of uh, Pentecost was a new law. Can I read Romans 8, 2? For the law of the spirit of the life of Christ Jesus had made me free from the law of sin and death. 
I think I have that verse there in your notes. That's a wonderful verse. What's the difference between that first Pentecost and the second Pentecost? Oh, the one is the law. The heavy weight of the law, our schoolmaster that Galatians says, teaches us that we're all lawbreakers. That's what the law does. It teaches us. It brings us to a place where our only hope is Jesus Christ. Because all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is no way that I'm able to undo the sin of my life. Jesus and Jesus alone can cleanse me through his precious blood. And I can be declared righteous by God because when I receive Jesus, I receive his righteousness as well. I'm no longer standing in my self-righteousness or my religious duty. I am standing in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, that perfect, sinless, spotless Lamb of God that God received. And now that I am in Christ, I also am accepted in the Beloved, Ephesians chapter 1. God doesn't accept me because of who I am and what I do. God accepts me because I am in His Son, Jesus Christ. And if you're here this morning and you've trusted Jesus as your Savior, can I tell you something? All of your sins already been dealt with. If you refuse to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, you will stand guilty before God for every sin, every word you're going to be held accountable for, every wicked deed. And God will stand as your judge in that last day. And God will have to condemn you for all eternity because you didn't come the only way God wanted you to come through His Son, Jesus Christ. You say, oh, but I came through my church baptismal waters. I'm sorry. It's not how you come to Jesus. Oh, no, I came through my special class, my confirmation. I'm sorry, that's not how you come to God. Oh, pastor, you don't understand. When I was a baby, my parents took me and I was christened and I was sprinkled and all this other stuff. That's not how you get to Jesus. You come to Jesus by grace through faith. Not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works. Lest any man should boast. You'd be able to brag all eternity about how good you were. Oh, yeah, I deserve to be in heaven. Look, I was a great father, a great mother. I'm awesome. I'm sorry, you're not. And neither is this Baptist preacher. We're all sinners. We all need a Savior. And that's enough. Jesus is enough. And so when God looks at me, He doesn't see me. He sees Jesus in me. And He declares me justified, declared righteous. Romans chapter number 5. And oh, the provision of God is now this new law, the law of the spirit of the life of Christ Jesus. Aren't you glad for the new law of Pentecost versus the old law of Mount Sinai? Aren't you glad here that now God is giving to us the very spirit of Christ and the Holy Spirit? Romans 8.23 says, And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit. How wonderful. We have something much better than law written in stone. We now have Jesus Christ and we have the Spirit of Christ. There is a connection here. In Pentecost, we see a connection, a connection, a picture. A picture of the Old Testament of the giving of the law and a provision in the New Testament of the Holy Spirit of God. All right? Number two, and I've got to go quickly. I just get a little excited when we get to talk about Jesus. In Pentecost, we see a connection. Number two, in Pentecost, we see a comforter. Go with me to John 14. Now, let me remind you that this passage in John chapter number 14, Jesus has already met with those disciples for the Last Supper. Jesus has already told Judas to go do whatever you're going to do. The disciples are now following the Lord Jesus Christ as he's going to the garden or still in the upper room. And what Jesus is going to do in chapter 14 and chapter 16 is teach us about the Holy Spirit of God. Boy, if the next great calendar event is the Pentecost where the Holy Spirit's going to be given here to the believers, there's the baptism of the Spirit. We're going to explain that in a little bit. And, and then the continual filling of the Spirit of God. That's the next event on the eternal calendar. 
Jesus Christ is preparing them for what's going to take place. He's already washed their feet. They've already celebrated what we call the Last Supper. The bread was broken. Judas is going out. Jesus is doing this final teaching. And what's he going to teach about? He's going to teach about the Holy Spirit. Look at verse number 16. And I pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. Boy, something wonderful is going to take place on Pentecost. God is going to give them the Holy Spirit of God who's going to take up residence in their very life. The Comforter is going to come. Let's answer the question, who is the Holy Spirit? Letter A, who is the Holy Spirit? It's the third person of the Godhead. Can I tell you something? The Holy Spirit of God is not an inanimate force. He's a person. And when Jesus spoke of the Holy Spirit of God, he spoke of him as a person. We're going to see this comforter has been active all through the Old Testament era as well. We'll see the Holy Spirit at creation, Genesis 1-2, where the Spirit of the Lord is going to move upon the face of the waters. We're going to see in the Old Testament him coming at different times on different individuals, a prophet, a priest, a king, a judge. And although the Spirit would come upon that person temporarily, he would also leave. Is that not why David the king in Psalm 51, as, as he is pouring his heart out to God, uh, remove not thy spirit from me, because in the Old Testament day, he saw it firsthand with Saul where King Saul had the Spirit of God that was removed from him. Listen, in the Old Testament time, the Spirit could come and the Spirit could go. But can I tell you in this New Testament era, the, the Spirit has come and He's still here. He resides in each and every one of us. So who is the Holy Spirit of God? He's the one that led Jesus in Matthew 4 into the wilderness and reminded Him of how you have victory over temptation. By allowing him to focus on the word, as it is written, as it is written, as it is written. It's the spirit that led Jesus into the wilderness. Here we see the verses in John chapter number 14. The Holy Spirit is not an it. The Holy Spirit's a person. Verse 17 says, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but ye know him, masculine pronoun, ye know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. Why don't you understand that the Spirit of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit of God, has taken up residence in your life when you receive Jesus as your Savior. And he is the comforter, and he is personal, and he's also precious. This word for comforter here, Verse 16, the word before comforter is another. Two Greek words for another in our New Testament. One is heretos, another of a different kind. The other is alos, another of the same kind. And so when Jesus said, I'm going to give you another comforter, he said, I'm going to give you another just like me. Another of the same kind. Can you imagine walking with Jesus for three years, having him teach you? Can you imagine what it must have been like to just see Jesus as he interacted with the crowds and the children, suffer the children to come unto me? Just imagine putting yourself in the crowd as you're watching Jesus teach. Oh, uh, the joy of that. And now the Bible tells you that there's another comforter. Paraclete is the Greek word that is going to abide in you. And the scripture makes it clear that he will abide with you forever. He's permanent. Not just personal, but he's precious because he's like Jesus. It is the spirit of Jesus. Three separate yet one God. We believe in a triune God. God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But it's one God. And here the Bible allows us to see the permanence and the preciousness as he 
now comes to abide forever. There is a connection. The Old Testament Pentecost took place at Mount Sinai. The New Testament Pentecost there is in the city of Jerusalem, Mount Zion. Uh, in Pentecost, we see the comforter. That's the who. Let's look at the what. What does the Holy Spirit do? Go to John 16 as Jesus continues his instruction on the Holy Spirit of God in John chapter number 16. Verse 7, these words, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it's expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Let's look first of all at consolation. He's the God of all comfort. He's the paraclete. He's the Holy Spirit. He is the Comforter and the Comforter offers consolation. There were times in the life of the disciples when they were separated by Jesus Christ and their hearts were filled with fear. Think about on the, on the Sea of Gennesareth. Think about the storm coming up. Think about how fearful they were. And then Jesus comes walking on the water. Now he's in the boat. Now he says, peace be still. I tell you, night and day between when Jesus is with us and when he's not. But in our lives, we have the Spirit of Christ 24-7. There's never a separation. There's never a time where we do not have this comforter. And so we have the consolation. Verse number 8 speaks to us of conviction. The Holy Spirit of God is given to us to convict and when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. The Holy Spirit's working in the world today to convince people that they're guilty before God, to convince people that they're unrighteous, that Jesus is the only righteous one, to convince people that there is judgment to come if you don't receive Jesus. That's the work of the Holy Spirit of God today. And so there is a consolation, there's a comforting work, there's a convicting work. And for you and I, there's also an illuminating work. Look at verse 13. Howbeit when He, the Spirit of truth, is come, He will guide you into all truth. For He shall not speak of Himself, but whatsoever He shall hear, that shall He speak, and He will show you things to come. He shall glorify me. Oh, the Holy Spirit of God is going to illuminate. That's what the Holy Spirit of God does. The Holy Spirit will convict. The Holy Spirit will console. And I'm so glad that as a child of God, that the moment I got saved, I received the Holy Spirit as my own. Number three, would you write in the little word church? In Pentecost, we see a church. We see a church. Think with me. Remember that illustration of the individual sheaves that were gathered together and weighed before God, individual strands of grain? All right. What did you have? You had 120 individual stalks of wheat walking up into the upper room. Then the Holy Spirit of God comes down corporately. And you know when they come down out of that room what they are? church. You say, why the loaves, pastor? Because the wheat's not individual wheat anymore. You know, God doesn't give any child of God the right to be separated from the church. The reality at Pentecost is the empowering of the church, uh, the engaging of the church. We see the evangelization that takes place. We see the church on the march, but those individual pieces of grain that were brought in from the harvest after the first fruits wave offering 50 days later, are now crushed together to become a single loaf. A loaf of fine flour mixed with leaven. Well, the fine flour points to Jesus Christ. The leaven points to us. <laughs> but we're all brought together to be that loaf before God. You say, now, pastor, why two loaves? Well, you've got to understand the struggle going on right now. 
up until this point, it's a Jewish church. And yet God's going to help them see that it's just not Jewish believers, but there's also an opportunity for Gentile believers as well. At Pentecost that are waved here before God and they're going to become one church. Folks, let me just say that it's a privilege to be a part of God's church. It's God's design, not man's design. We go up as individuals, but we come down as one. And the Holy Spirit of God is now going to use the church to accomplish Jesus' mission here on planet Earth. And so we see the church and its importance. And we see the importance of the loaves with the leaven. By the way, that person that says, hey, I'm not going to go to church because of all the hypocrites there, I say, well, what's one more? Join us, you know. <laughs> if you're looking for the perfect church, guess what? You're never going to find it because the church is filled with Sinners saved by grace. Isn't it interesting that God commanded them to put leaven in those loaves? Why? Because God knows it's not until we are with Him for all eternity that sin will be dealt with finally and completely. In the meantime, as we are in Christ and Christ is in us, aren't you glad that most of the loaf is Him? <laughs> all right, He's the fine meal. And we just get to be a part. Oh, I hope you feel that connection this morning. I hope you realize the importance that each of us have. And I hope you recognize that we're not standalone Christians. We're not in this world just to do our little thing. You know, here's my little stock of wheat. This is me. No, God says, no, that's not my plan. My plan is to take you and literally crush you down and mingle you together to become a loaf that I will use in great power to do my will on earth as it is in heaven. I'm glad I get to be a part. I'm glad that God's eternal plan put on the calendar this Pentecost and that in Pentecost we see, uh, yes, uh, a connection with the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, Pentecost so much better. The comforter that we receive, the church and the, the birthing here of that church and then I'll just close with this. Number five, four is Pentecost, we see a change. I'll deal with this at some other point, but the change came through two means. Number one, the baptism of the Spirit and the filling of the Spirit. And sometimes we get a little bit confused because do you understand that there's nowhere in the Bible where you're to seek the baptism of the Spirit of God? Nowhere. You are to seek the filling of the Spirit of God. The baptism of the Spirit of God, according to 1 Corinthians, puts us into this body. We're baptized. When? Well, historically, Acts chapter 2, but for every one of us, it's the day we got saved. The day we got saved. There are two baptisms of the Spirit that are in the Word of God, and guess what? One has to do with a Gentile believer, Cornelius, and Paul is saying, hey, just like at the first, just like at Pentecost, it happened here too. Why? You got the two loaves. Read Acts 10, 11. Read here how now Cornelius comes to faith. Uh, Peter kicking and screaming the whole way. God gives him a vision of all those unclean things coming down. And he says, no, God, no, no, not in your church. And God says, oh, yes, yes, yes. This is not a Jewish church. This is a... Jewish believer, Gentile believer church. And the baptisms are connected with each of those two groups. So I don't need to seek it. It's what God's already done. What I need to recognize is I'm resting in this baptism uh, of the Spirit where I am now in this family of God. Read it yourself. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse number 30. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. Baptized into one body. All right, I don't seek that. I don't pray for that. I don't have to pray for that to come down. It's a reality. My admonition and command 
from the book of Ephesians, chapter number 5, is be not drunk with wine, wear in excess, but be filled with the Spirit of God. Be being filled. Continuation. We constantly need to come and say, God, would you fill me with your Spirit? And so we see here in the Feast of Pentecost, the church, but we see this change. By the way, because of this baptism of the Spirit and the fact that now the Spirit of God resides in me, I can be different. Was the church transformed because the Spirit of God came upon him? Just do a, a case study of Peter. I mean, just a few days before, he's warming his hands by the fire, and a, a girl comes up and says, hey, don't you belong with this? No, 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 and he swears like a sailor. I apologize to sailors. But uh, he, uh, he just denies Christ. And then what took place? Oh, the Holy Spirit of God on Pentecost. And you have from that one that is afraid to open his mouth when a little girl asks him, hey, where, where are you from? I, I sense a dialect here. Are you from Galilee? <laughs> now he's boldly preaching. In Acts chapter number 2, what happened? The Holy Spirit of God happened. Pentecost happened. Some of you are fearful to be able to speak out for God because that's not your nature. Can I tell you, when the Holy Spirit of God is ruling and reigning in your heart, we're going to have a boldness that the church had. God's going to allow us to speak as uh, uh, we ought to speak for His glory. Acts 4.13 shows us a picture of that. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and spake the Word of God with boldness. There's a connection. Filled with the Holy Spirit, I'm going to speak bold. You say, what, up? what if I'm not speaking bold? Why don't you check up to see if you're filled with the Spirit? Joyfulness, singing. Ephesians 5, the same text that talks about be filled with the Spirit of God, singing and making melody in our heart to the Lord. By the way, a Spirit-filled congregation, you're going to hear it in the song service. You know, Brother Luke and his ministry here at Crown Point Baptist Church and leading us in song, Listen, that's just not, you know, the, how you start. That ought to be an outflow of spirit-filled believers singing praise and worship to God. And can I tell you, the song service is different when we are. And Oh, that we would see that that early New Testament church was filled with boldness. They were filled with joy. They were filled with singing. They were filled with unity. One heart, one soul. They were filled with generosity. The outcome of that flow, the filling of the Spirit of God is that they gave what they had to help others that needed. And so we see here the baptism versus the filling. Baptism, don't worry about it. It took place the moment you got saved. It took place historically in both the surrounding of Jewish believers and Gentile believers. But the filling of the Spirit of God is what each and every one of us need, even today. All that God would just bury in our hearts here, this Feast of Pentecost, and let it be real. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the teaching and preaching ministry of Crown Point Baptist Church. If this message was a help to you, please feel free to share it on social media. Thanks once again for tuning in.